Hi, Katie. Welcome to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about people from history you may or may not have heard of. <laughs> Today is our first ever two-parter, because I realise that this person cannot be done in one part. So this week's will be for part one, next week's will be for part two, and then you hear Dan. <laughs> a full-on marathon. Yeah, it's going to be crazy. A, a self-relay. Uh, should we get down to it and then we Let's can chat it. afterwards? Okay. You know who this person is. Everyone listening probably knows who this person is, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Uh, so have you ever heard of L. Ron Hubbard? Oh, the, possibly the most... <clears throat> is influential the right word? Powerful. Science fiction writer of all time. Yeah. The creator absolutely. of Scientology. Yeah, so for anyone that doesn't know who Aaron Hubbard is, he is the founder of the Church of Scientology. The church has been a recognised religion in the UK since 2013 um, and is recognised in a number of other countries, most notably the US, where it was originated. Interestingly, it's not recognised in France. Yeah, fair. Didn't know that. Didn't know that, but um, yeah, I here should... you can even get married as under a Scientology church. Maybe I should make a religion. The Church of Danology. <laughs> Touch of Manbunology. <laughs> okay, let's get going. So, uh, you know what the L stands for in L. Ron Hubbard? Uh, Leroy. No, it's not Leroy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first name that came to my head. It's Lafayette. So he was ah. born Lafayette Ron Hubbard in Tilden, Nebraska on the 13th of March. That is a cool 1911. name. It is. I don't know why he dropped the Lafayette. Where, where, cool. where was he born again? Sorry, At Tilden, Nebraska. Oh, okay then. I would have thought that would be like a New Orleans name. New Orleans. Yeah. Um, okay, so his father was Harry Ross Hub Hubbard, and he was a Navy man. When he met Elrond's mother, um, Ladora May Waterbury, she was actually studying to be a teacher in home Omaha when they met. Um, his parents married in 1909, and by 1911, Harry was no longer in the Navy. He was working at that in an advertising section of an Omaha newspaper. Mm. In 1913, the small family moved to Helena in Montana, and his father got a job managing a theatre. That was quite a change. Yeah, I mean, he moved around a lot, Elrond. Yeah. <laughs> you're going <laughs> to discover. So, Hubbard claimed that he learned to ride horses at a very early age. His maternal grandparents lived nearby, and they had a farm. Oh, man. That's pretty idyllic. Yeah, the church also claims that Hubbard was reading early, devouring shelves of classics, and also reading Freud. Hmm. I say the church claims because, I mean, I don't know if any of this is true, though I have to say that all of this pretty much comes from Lawrence Wright's Going Clear, which is like the best book on Scientology. When I first bought this book, I couldn't even get it in the UK, I had to order it from the US, but you can now just get it on Amazon, like... So what's the book about? Um, who, it's about who is he? Scientology. Um, is he Lawrence grad- Wright is like a journal, like an investigative journalist. Oh, okay, He's then. previously won the Pulitzer Prize. There's a the film also called Going Clear, which mm-hmm. is based on the book, but the book is a lot more detailed, and it has a lot about Ron Hubbard's life. And um, so when I first read this, I was outstanding at how his life really went down because obviously Lawrence Wright uses things like naval records. He uses like court records he uses testimony from people that have actually known him Mm. so that's where i'm getting most of this from but obviously i am interspersing the stuff the church says too okay 
1917, Hubbard's dad re-enlisted to the Navy when the US entered World War I. His mother got a job with the state of Montana and six-year-old Elrod moved in with his grandparents. His family were Methodist, but even at an early age, he was fascinated with shamans and magic. Mm. I was uh, baptised a Methodist. I wouldn't say I'm a Methodist now, but that's what happened. I can't believe you were baptised. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. That's so random. Yeah. I think you should let people, like, decide. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, one of the stories that stands out in Elrond's early life is a journey he took in 1923 from Seattle through the Panama Canal to Washington, D.C., where his father was being posted. At this time, he was 12. On the journey, Hubbard met Commander Joseph C. Thompson, who profoundly affected him. Thompson was a Navy man, a former spy, and apparently a personal friend of Sigmund Freud. He befriended the young Hubbard and told him stories of his times in Japan and other places, and he taught Hubbard his mantra, If it's not true for you, it's not true. Okay. Hubbard wanted to follow in Thompson's footsteps and study Freud, but his father wanted him to be an engineer. I think we need to unpack the If it's not true for you... It's I think true. it's gonna come back. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's basically preaching like extreme egocentrism. Yeah, absolutely. Like Thompson taught him about Freud as well. Yeah. Like a lot of his ideas come from Freud. But doesn't Freud like talk about that? Like egocentrism is like one of the uh, stages you need to like get over. Yeah, I don't think he's like a Freudian Hubbard. Okay. But he still learned a lot from him. Okay. Okay. Yeah, like I said, many of Freud's teachings appear in Hubbard's Mm -hmm. work. But we'll get onto that later. So in 1927, Elrond's father was posted to Guam and his mother went with him, leaving 16-year-old Elrond with his grandparents. Hubbard doesn't write much about his parents and almost completely writes them out of his own biography. Oh, that's harsh. (laughs) He made two trips to see his parents in Guam, one of which took him via China. According to the church, he braved a typhoon to get there, and when he did, he sought out a forbidden Buddhist lamasseries and watched monks meditating for weeks on end. That's where he apparently became interested in Eastern philosophies and religions. However, in reality, the trip was organised by his local YMCA and lasted only 10 days, and his parents accompanied him. Oh boy. His journals from the time show not a person gripped by philosophies, but a budding writer trying out plot ideas, though he did mention that he meets monks. So that part is true. Okay. Just not for weeks on end. Not for weeks on end <laughs> and didn't get stuck in a typhoon. <laughs> so he begins university in 1930, the School of Engineering program at George Washington University. He wasn't a particularly good student. He actually failed a couple of his classes, but he became very involved in extracurricular activities such as writing for the GWU, where his first works of fiction were published. In 1931, he and his friend Philip Browning took off on a trip around the Midwest in an aerosport biplane. <laughs> um, Elrond's account of this was first commercially his first commercially published story called Tailwind Willies, published by the Sportsman's Pilot in January 1932. Um, this was the beginning of a prolific writing career. He went to publish more books than any other author on record, a total of 1,084. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Considering I can't even finish the one book I've tried to write. Still, I'm finished this it. Says, it says books, but I wonder if that works. I wonder if I've 
translated that wrong. Might be works, which also includes magazine articles. Yeah, but okay, I do then. think he writes, a l- he's written a lot of books. Yeah. And yeah, he's still, it's in the Guinness Book of Records. Wow. As the most pu- published books. He could have just probably stopped there, couldn't he? Just went, I'm could've happy, been I'm happy with all the books that I've written. I don't need to start a religion. All the books. <laughs> um. Okay, so... In 1932, Hubbard began on an exposition around the Caribbean with a journalist called James S. Free, apparently to record video footage for newsreels. They managed to also sign up 56 other members who all paid a fee to go and got some equipment loaned to them from the University of Michigan. I think the fee was like $250 or something. Wow. I mean... And this was obviously doomed from the start. They set out on a four-masted schooner called the Doris Hamlin. The seas were either windless or going and going nowhere, or so choppy that everyone was seasick. At every port, more and more people deserted, and only one film was taken of a cockfight. <laughs> Hubbard didn't have enough money to feed the people or to pay the professional sailors that were on board. Oh, he had to borrow money or sell shares from the trip, but eventually the remaining people got tired of it. And made an effigy of him on board, like <laughs> hanging him. So he he stayed in his cabin after that happened. Oh, the captain, who was like not getting paid, turned back to Baltimore. But Hubbard wasn't on board when they arrived, having slipped off in Puerto Rico. Despite all the defections, Hubbard did demonstrate his ability to rally troops, even to dubious adventures. This is something that he kept doing throughout his life, usually with young people and often at sea. Okay, so we're going into adulthood here. Elron married Margaret Louise Grubb when she was 23, well, he was 23 and she was 27. He called her Polly. Polly wanted to fly, she wanted to be a pilot, but she actually never managed to get her pilot's license. But you can see why they're attracted. He's adventurous, mm-hmm. she's like, wants to be a pilot. They moved to Maryland to be near her family farm. Hubbard was trying to make it a professional writer, and by 1933, he had published about half a dozen articles. Soon, Polly was pregnant, and Hubbard's income wasn't enough. So this time, pulp magazines were a massive thing. They didn't pay very well, usually about a penny a word, but there were so many that authors could make money like churning out. Mm. So like people like um, Asimov... And stuff like would yeah. do this. There were about 150 odd pulp weeklies. So you could like write for like a whole load of them mm. and make a good living. So he published his first pulp story called The Green God in 1934 about a naval intelligence officer in a magazine called Thrilling Adventures. Probably like influenced by Thompson, that guy he met on the. Oh, when yeah, he was yeah. in the Suez Canal. Um, so he. Then also published his first of 47 Westerns that he wrote called Maybe Because. And soon there were many other stories about submarines, zombies, set in Russia, set in Morocco, zombies, all sorts nice. of things. Yeah. I wish that was still around now. Like, it's, it's so much harder to make a living as a writer in yeah, modern I mean, world. You can write, like, for weeklies, like, you know, like those, like, 
women's magazines. Mm, yeah, yeah. But it's not the same kind of like science fiction or whatever. No, you can't, yeah, it's not like fiction kind of like collections. That are, like, there are fiction collections of stories, mm. but it's so hard to get like the monocle or whatever. Yeah. But it's so hard to write like writing pulp fiction yeah. is not a way to make a living anymore. It was a bit. It has, hasn't been for ages. Like now, and then the internet came along, and now it's just totally dead. Yeah, obviously because everything's just online. Yeah. Just read some free fan fiction instead. That doesn't mean that it's not a good thing to do. Everyone keep writing. Oh yeah, do, absolutely. Do your but. thing. So success in pulp fiction means high volume, and the church estimates that between 1934 and 1936, he was writing 100,000 words of fiction a month. Oh, that's impressive. His philosophy was first draft last draft out the door he also adopted more than 20 aliases because the magazines don't want like people being published more than once because it Mm -hmm. seems like they've got loads of authors but actually like it's all him yeah yeah his son elron jr was born on the 7th of may 1934 in california when couple were on vacation he was premature and elron made a makeshift incubator of a box and a lamp and he had to be fed with like a (laughs) pippy tube um, with like a eye droplet thing, like when you like look after a baby bird. He was like school. two pounds or something crazy like that. I mean, that, that's really impressive. I, yeah, I, I mean, say. he he did invent this like little, you know, yeah. he managed to keep him alive. <laughs> um, two years later, they had a daughter called Catherine, who they called Kay. They moved to Washington and bought a small farm with some land. And Elrond started spending a lot of time in New York, making contacts and leaving his family at home on the farm. In 1937, one of Hubbard's stories, The Secret Treasure, The Secret of Treasure Island, got optioned in Hollywood. So he moved out there, trying to make it in Hollywood. However, he came back not having made it. Even though he later claimed to have worked on many films, there are no other credits for him except for that one film. Okay. And then he went back to writing. On New Year's Day in 1938, he had a revelation that would change everything while under gas anesthetic at the dentist he claimed that his heart stopped beating and that the secrets of existence were revealed to him in his own account of the event he said that he awoke from being dead and he was still like in contact with something apparently he turned to the like dental nurse and was like was i dead and they didn't say anything but like the doctor's the dentist's face like made a face so after a few days of not being able to like recall the spiritual feeling back to him, he managed to do so. And after this, he wrote an entire book very quickly called Excalibur, fragments of which the church claimed to have in their possession. The book was about an old man who reduced the meaning of life to one sentence. Okay. Yeah. What? So what was what was he under? Like anesthetic. Yeah, gas anaesthetic. I've actually been under gas anaesthetic when I had my teeth. We're talking about like laughing gas. Yeah, it's essentially laughing Mm. gas, but it's like um, it puts you to actual sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not surprised that he had some uh, some trip. Interesting thoughts. (laughs) So he asked New York publishers to meet him at Penn Station, where he would auction the book off. But it was never actually published. This leads some to believe that it may not have actually ever existed. He also said some outlandish claims about the book, like the Russian had offered him a lab to continue his work, and that it was withdrawn for publication because the first six people who read it lost their minds. (laughs) Which sounds a bit not true. 
So he returned to writing for the pulps and he got an offer to write for one called Outstanding Science Fiction. Hubbard then discovered one of his greatest talents, sci-fi writing. By this time, Hubbard was half living with his family on the farm and half in his rented apartment in New York City in like the Upper West Side. He enjoyed getting together with his writer colleagues and friends and was a member of the prestigious Explorers Club and he courted other women outside of his marriage. He blamed Polly for his affairs, saying that she was cold. Polly found out about a few of the affairs by 19... But by 1940, they had made up and went on a six-month cruise to Alaska, apparently to rewrite the navigation guide for the coast, but they broke down and it never happened. There's one story about how she found, like, some letters from his, like, two of the people that he was courting, and he, Mm. like, swapped the letters, envelopes, so when he replied, they were, like, to the wrong people or something. (laughs) That's it. I really want to know more about that story, but that's all I know. (laughs) Now something big happens in the world, which we can't really ignore. That is World War II. So there's differing narratives over Hubbard during World War II and his time in the US Navy. First of all, he failed the Navy entrance exam and was further disqualified because of his eyesight. This was when he first signed up for the reserves in 1930. He also lied about his age when he signed up. Um, I think this was because it made him like a couple of years older than everyone else, so he'd start higher up or something. Okay. But he was um, asked to be discharged like a year later. However, in 1941, Roosevelt declared a national emergency and Hubbard's bad eyesight was overlooked. He joined the Naval Reserve as a lieutenant junior grade in July 1941. So Hubbard's version of events basically goes something like this. He was aboard the SS... Edsel, which was sunk, and everyone died except him. He managed to swim to shore and disappear into the jungles. This is where he says he was on the 7th of December, 1941, which is Pearl Harbor. He says he survived being gunned down by the Japanese and escaped on a raft to Australia. He also claims that at one point he was posted in the Philippines and was flown home on a private plane in 1942. The first version is definitely untrue. The USS Edsel didn't even sink until March of 1942. (laughs) So the dates are just wrong. His naval records also tell a different story. First, he was training in New York as an intelligence officer. He was meant to be posted to the Philippines, but actually they were redirected to Australia because there were too many ships in like the sea, Mm -hmm. the way they were going where he fell out with an American naval attaché by assuming unauthorised authority and he was sent back to New York. So, yeah, the only thing that is really true is that he was in the Philippines (laughs) at one point. So very short, uneventful... Oh no, there's more. So oh, okay. he was eventually given the command of a gunboat, the USS um, YP-422, but was relieved of command before he even made it out of Boston Navy Yard. There is no actual record that Hubbard saw any action in the Atlantic at any time. Wow. He then went to submarine chaser training in Miami, <laughs> where the only thing he managed to do was contract gonorrhea. Oh, he finally got command of his own ship, the PC-815, and was even mentioned in a local newspaper in Oregon. On the 18th of May, 1943, they set off, and not long after they had, they encountered what they thought was an enemy submarine. They open fired, but it turned out to be a log. <laughs> 
Harpard was not deterred and was convinced there was still a submarine or two out there, so he continued to op- open fire. Destroys that log. <laughs> he really didn't like that log. After eight hours, they were ordered to return to port. He claimed they had sunk one or perhaps two enemy subs, but after investigation, it was determined they hadn't sunk any. A month later, he was relieved of his command for accidentally shooting an ally on the coast of Mexico. Not like with a handgun, like <laughs> on a ship. Well, at least he kicked the crap out of that log. I'm pretty impressed <laughs> yeah. by that. He, I'm, I think that's probably on the church's website. <laughs> After a brief stint in hospital, he also got an assignment as a navigation officer on the USS Algol. He was. This was an opportunity for him to see some real action, which you would think he would want, seeing as he wanted to be a hero. But instead, he requested a transfer to the School of Military Government at Princeton. He arrived at Princeton in September 1944. He fell in with a group of science fiction writers who were trying to come up with a way around Japanese kamikaze attacks and probably slept with one of their wives. He also started another affair with a woman called Vida Jameson, a young writer, and even proposed to her despite still being married. And also having gonorrhea? Uh, yeah, I mean, gonorrhea, like VD yeah, in general, was like massive during both wars. Mm. It's like he, especially I think in World War One, like VD was like everywhere. Yeah. So guys, gonorrhea is a particularly get nasty tested. One, though, it? <laughs> it's free. Get tested. <laughs> he graduated in January 1945, and then another opportunity for action came his way, but he was admitted to hospital with stomach pains. How convenient. <laughs> Hubbard claims he was abandoned by his family and friends and may have ended up a cripple if he had not healed himself with techniques that would later become the foundation of Dianetics and Scientology. The doctors were not really sure what was wrong with him apart from a recurring ulcer he had. His military records show no injuries at all during the war. Okay. So, after the war. Polly finally left her husband as he was in hospital and he went to South Southern California in a trailer to find his place in the world. At this time, many new religions and movements were springing up with people from Hubbard's generation also trying to find their place after the war. One evening, Hubbard's friend Robert Heinlein brought him along to John Whiteside Parsons' parsonage, which was kind of like an old um, building... That they, he had broken up into apartments. Okay. And like loads of actors and artists and writers lived there. So it's like this kind of communal living thing that was Good going on. Yeah. Um, so they, he brought um, Hubbard along with him. And within a few months, Hubbard had moved in. He actually asked Vida Jameson to join him. And she moved from New York to be with him, um, only to have his sights move from her to Sarah Northrup. So Sarah Northrup was the girlfriend of Parsons and she actually partly owned the building. Oh, harsh. Parsons described in a letter how Sarah changed her sexual attraction to Hubbard, but he still admired his grasp of magic. Magic with a K at the end. <laughs> German magic. Magic, like, you know, when, like, it's spelt like that because people were like, yeah, this is how it's really supposed to be spelt. Okay. And it's like, but, like, not in english (laughs) anyway um (laughs) there were many people living in the parsonage that could have influenced hubbard at this time 
practicing and talking about magic and spirituality and religion. His eldest and estranged son even called Scientology essentially black magic. Hubbard okay. took part in rituals during this time with Parsons and another man named Crowley. When I say rituals, they were all very weird. There was something about Parsons, like, masturbating during them and, yeah, uh-huh. how he wanted to get, like, this, like, scarlet woman to appear and then a woman appeared and it was all very weird and horrible. I won't repeat, like, all of it, but, yeah, it wasn't good so hubbard and parsons went into business together which is like so sensible um parsons gave hubbard two twenty thousand dollars to buy yachts in miami sell them to california through the panama canal and resell them for a profit so hubbard and sarah who is now his woman left for miami Um, Also, while there, he applied to increase his Navy disability, complaining that his ulcers and eyesight were getting worse. At the time, he was getting $11.50 a month, which is about $150 today. Um, But then when he did apply, they actually did increase it to like 40%, so it increased. That's pretty generous. It's not like a lot, but it's not like an un... It's not like nothing. But yeah, it's quite impressive you can claim army pension disability on the basis of an ulcer and, and, and don't forget about his bad eyesight Dan. <laughs> so parsons decided to move follow them to miami because he thought they had other plans for his money only to find that they had already sailed away he performed a ritual which he claims ripped the sail off and they had to come back whereas sarah uh, says they were simply caught in a storm um, eventually sarah agreed to marry elron and they married in front of the minister, his wife, and their housemaid on the 10th of August, 1946. His wife? No, as in the minister's wife. Oh, okay then. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's, let's all remember that he's not actually officially divorced from Polly yet. So, okay. Yeah, that's going to go really well. Um, so the church admits um, Hubbard's involvement with Parsons, but later but claims that he was actually undercover for the Navy. So just to put that in there. Hubbard and Sarah moved into a lighthouse on a frozen lake in Pennsylvania. He had begun beating her when they were in Mi- Miami. What? and He even hit her around the face with a pistol once. What the hell? When this happened, she actually went out onto the frozen lake and just walked, and she just didn't know what to do. Oh, jeez. She had actually. Yeah, she was a writer herself, and she had been giving him plot ideas and even writing stories for him because he was, like, blocked. But she didn't believe in divorce, and she still thought she could save him. Oh, man. So Elrond then took a loan out and bought a house trailer. They drove to his family farm where Sarah, I think it's actually pronounced Sarah, but it's like spelt Sarah, found out he was still married to Polly. She ran off, but he persuaded her that they were actually legally married and she went back to him. Once again, um, he went off to Hollywood, but on the way he was arrested for not making car payments on the trailer. Many of... This, as I said, comes from Lawrence Wright's book, and he cites what he calls Hubbard's secret memoir, a document that the church claims is a forgery. In the second part of sometimes called the affirmations, he lists, like, affirmations, things like, you will always look young, you will live to 200 years old, you will make your fortunes in writing. 
which is just a bit bizarre. Kind of writing like statements of, you know, when you make a statement to yourself, like, it's going to be mm. okay, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. I say a lot, <laughs> but you know, like that kind of thing. He was also really afraid of hypnotism, which is ironic seeing as he was a very skilled hypnotist. He once put a whole room of people into a trance. So his book was used in evidence in a court case. I don't know much about the court case. It is like detailed in the book a bit more, but the guy who used the book against the church said the organization is clearly schizophrenic and paranoid and this bizarre combination seems to be a reflection of its founder. So, in 1948, he set up shop in Hollywood as a freelance guru. Okay. He started floating the idea of a book, which at first was going to be called An Introduction to Traumatic Psychology and later would be published under the name Dianetics. So... Between 1948 and 49 is a slightly unknown period of his life. He wrote that he was, we wrote in a letter to a friend that he was volunteering at a psychiatric clinic in Georgia. And this was clearly where he decided some of his principles about the human mind. He wrote in a letter to Heinlein, his friend, It ain't a game religion, it just abolished it, it's a science. He also outlined to Heinlein what would later become the tone scale with four states of mind, that his method would drain the mind of painful experiences and associations and that would produce, like, ultimate happiness. Which is, like, kind of still what Scientology do today. So, not so much trying to improve yourself to be a better person in the world. It's just to cleanse you of the bad things that you've done so you can just carry on. It's like self-improvement by cleansing all of the... Okay, it's then. not just things about you. It's things about, like, your life you don't remember and also, like, pre-birth life. But we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> so, um, this is a random thing that I don't know much about, but he mm-hmm. applied for a marriage license to marry a woman named Anne Jensen, but then she learned about his other wife or wives and um, her name is completely wiped from his story. So we don't know much about that. Then Elrond and Sarah, Sarah, moved to New Jersey where John Campbell, editor of Outstanding Science Fiction, lived. And Elrond gains his first convert. He practices deep hypnosis on Campbell. Campbell says Hubbard brought forth the memory of his traumatic birth and helped erase it. In 1950, they moved into a house and Alexis was born. She was the absolute image of her father. So I don't know if you know what Elrond looks like, but he is like a shocking redhead. Okay. So this is, Alexis is the daughter of him and Sarah. Is she now uh, like uh, involved in the uh, in the church? Alexis? Yeah. As far as I know, none of his children are, but I will okay. get to that in the next episode when we talk about the church. So Elrond wrote to Heinlein that Dianetics was 180,000 words. He started in January, finished it in February, and it was off to the press by April. Hubbard saw the need for creating a special vocabulary. This was through other people who had written, like, both science fiction and science and created Mm -hmm. their own vocabularies for it. So this is where he came up with words such as Thetan, which is, like, the soul. And he invented new words, such as hatting, which means training, and other things like engrams. So engrams are, basically, they are awakened with stimulus and people can be controlled by them. So like, memories or things that have happened are the engrams and they can be erased using his method. 
Okay. We'll get into this more a bit like later on in the mm-hmm. next episode because that's when we talk about like the real birth of Scientology. Okay. Okay. So uh, Campbell published an excerpt ex- excerpt from the book in outstanding science fiction but warned the readers it was not a joke or a hoax it was actually science in may the book appeared dianetics the modern science of mental health the church dates its own calendar to 1950 the year that it was published it has two parts the conscious mind which stores everything like smells or sounds etc um and then and does all the thinking and then the Mm -hmm. reactive mind which is the source of fears and insecurities So that's where, like, engrams are stored. He claims at this point that hundreds of people have been cured by his methods. And he says that Dianetics deletes all pain from a lifetime. Um, There's no actual evidence that at this point he had cured hundreds of people. (laughs) Dianetics became a sensation. It stayed on the New York bestseller list for 28 weeks. Which is a really long Mm, time. That is impressive. Yeah, it was a self-help book where all you needed was one other person called an auditor and you could just be happy for the rest of your life. The scientific community, however, didn't exactly take to Dianetics. (laughs) It received a lot of criticism. (laughs) They're not like from everyone in the scientific community, but like most people. Sarah said of his practices... He would hold hands with them and try to talk them into these phony memories. He would concentrate on them and they loved it. Like, people just loved being told that, oh, now you have the memory of your birth or pre-birth or memories from past lives. <laughs> he also had these really horrible views on abortion. And his son even said later that he had pawned at home abortion on Polly, which he witnessed, which is just horrific. Oh, God. So Hubbard then set up schools in major cities to train auditors. This, along with book sales, made him quite rich. In Dianetics, he refers to the power of clears. I mean, this book that I'm talking about is called Going Clear. Clear Uh is a big thing in Scientology. These are people who are cleared of all engrams. But so far, he hadn't actually produced one. Then, August 1950, a woman named Sonia Bianca was presented as the world's first clear. She was able to recall every single moment of her life. However, this was a fiasco, as she failed to answer some simple questions like what? colour tie Ron was wearing (laughs) it would be another 16 years before he announced another clear so essentially if you're clear you're like you have a photographic memory of everything that's ever happened to you ever not just your life but also like your previous lives I think Mm -hmm. I'll get into all of the like actual Scientology practices in the next episode because this is like we're coming up to where Scientology Mm -hmm. begins so his marriage by this time was on the rocks. He was beating her regularly and she moved from their house in Hollywood to the LA Dianetics Research Foundation building with Alexis, their daughter. Hang on, which, which wife is this? <laughs> this is Sarah. <laughs> okay. So he, she's the only wife at the moment. <laughs> okay. So Elrond told his lover, Barbara Nolan, that Sarah was plotting to put him in a mental institution. So he he was just really paranoid about, like, so many things. In February 1951, Sarah went to the movies and left Alexis with a babysitter. Like a friend, not like a teenage babysitter, like a, uh-huh. like a man friend. Elrond took this as an opportunity and kidnapped his daughter. Not him personally, like his, like, cronies. They also then kidnapped Sarah and she warned him that 
that kidnapping was a capital offence and she was like scared for her life. So Sarah and Elrond eventually made a truce. So he basically tried to get her committed to an asylum, but they wouldn't, no one would talk to him. It was like middle of the night. So instead they made a truce. <laughs> this sounds like that episode of Peep Show where they're just trying to section each other. Oh my god. You, you try to section me. You try to section me. I'll section you so much. <laughs> Uh, so yeah eventually they made a truce he told her where Lexus was but then when Sarah went to pick her up she was told that a young couple had already picked her up Hubbard then moved to Florida where the child was brought to him and they flew to Cuba Sarah started to search her search in California she then created a sensation by filing for divorce claiming that they had been he had been married when they wed which obviously he had (laughs) Sarah even got a letter from Polly, the previous wife, saying that she wanted to help any way that she could and that she doesn't think Alexis should be with Elrond. That he's, like, mad and stuff. Are they going to make, like, an ex-wives club? <laughs> yeah, like, um, <laughs> like six from, like, the musical. <laughs> so Hubbard was in Havana and he hired two women to take care of Alexis. He was writing his next book, Science of Survival, where he wrote about the tone scale from zero to four, so zero being death and four being clear. And now okay. there are like more levels after that. Eventually, Hubbard returned to the US, to Kansas, and Sarah finally got her divorce. She agreed to go on a trip with Elron. And then after that, he drove with her to the airport. Halfway, he said he changed his mind. So when they got to the airstrip, the edge of the airstrip, she grabbed Alexis, left all their bags and ran. And she said that was the best day of her life. Within the year, Hubbard had lost his wealth and fame. The foundation he had set up had completely gone bankrupt. So he bought another new trader to live near a friend. He got a new wife, Mary Sue Whip, and she became pregnant. He also decided to come up with a new name for his movement, Scientology. And that's where I'm going to pause. <laughs> so the next episode will be about the growth of Scientology, the Sea Organization, which is a big part of Elrond's later life because he lived a lot of it like at sea mm-hmm. and his death. Okay. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed part one of Elrond Hubbard and... You are excited for the madness of part two, which will be just as mad. Well, I found that very interesting. Where where does the name come from, Scientology? Or are you going to go into that next week as well? I think he just made it up. (laughs) Just say when. Like... Science fiction? Scientology. In the book that I'm basing a lot of this off, um, yeah, this is where, like, the chapter pauses. So I'm going to kind of do the next chapter of the book obviously Lawrence Wright deserves all the credit for this because he is a fantastic (laughs) writer also if you're interested in the interim go to um, Louis Theroux's podcast and listen to the Leah Remini episode Leah Remini was um, a Scientologist for many many years she's obviously a famous actress um, and she left the, the church and she is in on that but she's also got her own podcast called um fair game and she has a a tv show called the aftermath so you can just go and like stalk leah remini everywhere because she's amazing i just obsessed with her voice as well she's got such a nice like croaky voice um i'm gonna check that you can also john sweeney has his famous panorama episode on scientology 
there's the film going clear though you're going to ruin the next bit of the, <laughs> the two-part and there is louis through my scientology movie so feel free to go and look at all of those things and come back next week for part two it's, it's quite interesting how many uh yeah big old stars seem to find themselves in uh yeah, I, that's that definitely something that the book addresses as well. So the mm-hmm. the subtitle is Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief. So it's like, it talks about, basically the book talks about Elrond uh, in the beginning. Then it talks about the, the, like, the growth of Scientology. Mm-hmm. Then it talks about Hollywood and how like the stars became involved. And then it talks about like all the grim stuff. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to taking this ride, going down this rabbit hole. <laughs> you should borrow the book, like at some point, to read oh, like the rest of the stuff. He does like a whole chapter on Tom Cruise. Yeah, um, I definitely want to. But yeah, Leah Remini's um, and her her co-host is Marty Rathburn, who used to be really big in the church. He used to be mm-hmm. like the PR guy, and he used to be the guy that was in charge of like fair gaming people. Um, he's oh, wow. the co-host. He has now left the church too, and yeah. So I mean, it's interesting also to go to the Scientology website and look at their version of the events of Elrond Hubbard's life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't want to like confuse it too much by putting much of that in there because it would just be so contradictory. Yeah, just like completely opposite, like uh, <laughs> descriptions of the same event. So what are you doing for the rest of your day? I am going to be very cool and paint some little miniatures. Yay, painting miniatures. <laughs> How about you? Well, I'm probably going to edit this podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, get this out. We're um, doing it late this week. So. Yeah, we're doing it like a day before I need to put it up. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. The deadlines um, are calling. I'm going to finish maybe reading my book. Um, yeah, What are you I'm reading? Like, I'm reading the second in the... I'm just about to finish the second book in the Three Body Problem series. Um, oh, by the way, Dan, happy Chinese New Year. Kong hei choi. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Wow, that's so cool. I'm not going to pretend that I know how to say that. Um, it's the year of the ox. What year were you born in? The ox, it's my year. Is this your year? What yeah. does it mean when it's your year? It's a, It should be a good year. A year of prosperity, but... Oh, God. I that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> the well, first half of this is still going to be COVID land, so yeah. But, but maybe, maybe the like, second, the second half will be even more prosperous. Double the prosperity in the second half of the year. Well, you are like making money and not spending it, so that is true. That is true. Though my contract is up in two weeks. So yeah, then, I know. I've been watching money. your tweets go. <laughs> yeah, my work finished on Friday. I'm really sad. Um, but also, but, I get I have a new job. So that's yeah. really good. And I hopefully will start it soon, but obviously we're waiting for all the like paperwork to be done. Um, Greener pastures indeed. <laughs> and yeah. What else is happening? That's it really. What does like the ox say about you? Has it got like traits? Because I know I'm the snake and apparently the snake is like philosophical and stuff. I think I'm like stoic and stuff as well. That suits you. They impress people with an image of endurance, honesty, and diligence. They seldom fear for any hardships or difficulties. They are persistent but stubborn, cautious but hesitant. Those are the same things. 
moody and quick tempered. I don't think I'm either of those things. Moody, definitely moody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am moody. It's yeah. just an email. I, I don't think I'm quick tempered. No, not really. Hold conservative and traditionalistic personalities. Hmm. Not really sure about don't that. I think so. <laughs> not quite. <laughs> Yeah, I always wonder like which um, stuff to follow because it's like the snake means I'm one thing, but then being a Leo means I'm like a whole other thing. Yeah. So like, which one am I? I mean, maybe it's all rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably that one. <laughs> yeah, it's probably that one. I do think I do have some of the Leo qualities though. Like I'm a natural leader and I'm always like loud and generous to my friends, which I am. But, like, then I have qualities of, like, all the other ones as well. Like, yeah. you can That's just... That's the thing. They're just so general that, like, yeah. you can fit into anything. And um, horoscopes, like, I like to call it advice roulette. Because you could pick any of them. And yeah. they would apply to your situation. So it's just advice roulette. Like, I could tell you <laughs> something and you'd be like, oh, that totally fits with this part of my day. But actually, like, it, you know... It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, it's all the same. Anyway, if you're looking to like, you're looking to apply it, you'll be able to apply it. Exactly. Yeah. So please do tune in next week for part two of Elrond Harvard. I hope that you found this one informative and subscribe wherever you're listening to this so you can get part two on your phones. And give us a lovely little review. Yeah. Five stars. Five stars if you, if like, you enjoyed if it. If you like five stars, no pressure. Then, yeah, I mean, no we're not pressure at say all. No. <laughs> and uh follow us on twitter at have you ever pod oh and instagram as well where we have a nice little group of podcasters we follow and you'll be able to kind of hear about all our upcoming episodes and other history stuff that we sometimes tweet about and uh see you next time bye, bye.